asked the question, what hope do we have? And um, my brother's visiting this morning. I don't know if you've seen him. This is Stuart. Stand up for me. <laughs> this is how we treat guests. Welcome. <laughs> it's okay. You haven't got to clap him. You don't need to clap a man for standing. Um, but in case you've had any reason to complain for this morning, we do look similar. I just want to make sure that you recognize he's the person to talk to. Um, if you've got anything you want, you're disgruntled about, upset in any way, go and speak to him. But what hope do we have, <laughs> the rest of us? What hope do we have? That's what we're talking about. Easter is uh, a story all about hope, the hope that we have. And uh, if you've seen the news this week, you might well be asking that question, what hope do we have? This is just a snapshot from the BBC News front page. Just the other day on Friday, we've got the Americans dropping a massive bomb, like big bomb on the world. Um, Britain being stabbed to death in Jerusalem. And North Korea looks like they're about to blow up the world. Um, we've got battle in Mosul and United Airlines having the worst week of their life. <laughs> this week has been a particularly um, difficult week globally. I think the news cycle has not been a pretty one. There's been lots and lots of stories that have been depressing. And things that, if you're anything like me, every, every few moments it seems my phone is pinging with a headline telling me, oh, another terrorist attack or you know, North Korea and the US are falling out over this. And we can be left wondering, what hope do we have? Is there any hope globally? And is there any hope for our own lives, the struggles that we face? It's not just you look at the news and go, wow, it's difficult. Sometimes you can look at your own life and think, I don't know how I'm going to put these pieces back together. This is difficult. I mean, Easter's a time for happiness and celebrating, but really, I feel like I've got very little to celebrate. I'm struggling to find reasons to be hopeful and happy. Uh, a friend of mine uh, called Oksana from the Ukraine, she lived, here, she lived with us for a year in the UK, and I worked with her every day, and she got used to just my annoying habits and stuff and my terrible jokes. And on one particular occasion, I remember she looked at me with her kind of sweet Ukrainian, brutal, Eastern European honesty, and, uh, and just said to me, no hope, no hope at all. Well, that is it. That is the story of my life. No hope at all. Um, well, we've had 27 stories um, on that video of people who've said that actually Easter has offered them hope, hope of life change. And Easter, ever since the first Easter Sunday, has been a story of hope coming and of lives being changed as a result of what Easter is all about. Whether you're a strong person or a scared person or a skeptical person, in the New Testament there are examples of all types of different people having hope invade their lives and the difference that it made. When Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, there was a, a Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross, a big, burly, tough, gruff of a man who'd seen some battles. And as Jesus died, the Bible records for us his words, and he said, surely this man was a righteous man, or surely this man was the son of God, some translations put it. As he died, he realized there's something different about this one. They saw the, he saw the manner of his death. A centurion who'd seen a lot of people die, and he thought, there's something different about him. Or one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, who was the self-appointed leader of the group. He was the loudmouth. He was the external processor who spoke before he thought. He was the guy that said to Jesus, I'll never deny you. If everyone else denies you, I'll never deny you. And then when Jesus was arrested, a servant girl asked him, Ah, oh, you're a follower of Jesus', aren't you? A little girl asked him, and he said, no, I'm not. I'm not. I don't know anything to do with him. Three times he denied Jesus, a cockerel crowed, and he realized, yikes, what have I done? He was scared. Or perhaps you might more identify with one of Jesus' friends, a follower, a man named Thomas, whose history's come to call Doubting Thomas because of his skepticism. 
Uh, when all of his friends were believing that Jesus was alive, Thomas said, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it. Not until I can see it with my eyes or put my hands in the nail prints in his hands. I won't believe it. And us, you know, 21st century Westerners stroke our beards and say, well done, Thomas. You know, only believe empirical evidence when proved to you with your eyes. Don't trust these stories. And Thomas was like one of those people. Well, whether it's Peter or Thomas, both of them had their lives turned around by meeting the risen Jesus. The scared Peter went on to be the foremost preacher in the early church who ended up being crucified upside down, which isn't a pretty story. But he was crucified upside down because of his resolute commitment to the story of Easter. Or Thomas, when he did meet Jesus, he cried out, my Lord and my God. Easter's always been uh, an event, an occasion for celebrating stories of life change, even from the beginning. And actually, historians record for us how it is that Christianity became a global movement. I mean, we take it for granted. We swim in the waters of Christianity. Uh, Its virtues and values are just part of Western society, so we don't think anything of it. But Christianity began with a scared group of followers of Jesus, disillusioned, discouraged, on their way back to their old life, given up. You wouldn't put money on them overcoming the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what they did. Now we name our salads after Caesars and we name our sons after followers of Jesus. That's the impact of Christianity. And historians tell us that the Christian movement spread through the known world and became the civilized world as we know it, not as a result of big and impressive events or impressive preachers with gifts of healing, but instead Christianity spread house by house as people gossiped about the story of Easter and about its implications, and about how Easter changes lives. And as people met Jesus, and as their lives changed, they would tell someone else. And it spread house by house, person by person, until in the year 300 AD, the Roman Empire went, fine, we might as well stop persecuting this and make it the official religion. And and then everyone knew about Christianity. But how did it get like this? And how can we trust it? How can we trust that Christianity is true? Something that I find quite fascinating about Christianity is that it's always produced um, spiritual and experienced encounters with Jesus that has created impressive change in people's lives. One academic um, sociologist of religion who wasn't a Christian when he started his, his work, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he said this, have we put this quote up? He said, through the centuries, countless Christians have reported direct encounters with Jesus. This is but one form of the many experiential confirmations of faith that abound in Christianity, from a quiet sense of the closeness of God to ecstatic episodes and speaking in tongues. Other world religions seem unable to produce these mystical manifestations in a general population or do so only among a cloistered few. This is not to minimize Christianity's intellectual side. Every year, thousands of serious books on Christian history and theology are published, read, and discussed. He made the, he's making the point that this has always been Christian stories. Those 27 stories could be replicated throughout the ages. So why is Christianity so effective? Why are we sitting here in a country that's largely thrown off Christianity? But why have we got a room full of people going, well, it's good news. And I want to celebrate it and sing songs and clink glasses and you know, drink champagne. Well, we all know why people want to drink champagne, but that's a different question. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus. Have you heard A man has been raised to life. Have you heard about the God of love who came down to save us and sent his son? And now the claim is that he didn't just die, but is alive. Have you heard that message? Yeah, but we live in a society of fake news, don't we? 
or as people used to call it, propaganda. We live in a society of fake news where it's hard to know what to, can we trust, who can we believe, and maybe Christians are just, I don't know, peddling fake news to keep people like me in a job. Maybe that's why the church is still going. Well, here's some of my favorite fake news stories that have been, have been around recently. Just thought we'd take a moment to enjoy some of the propaganda out there. Pope Francis shocks world endorsement of Donald Trump as president. That's not true. But the best one's this one. Um, by Giorgio. George Osborne takes new job as fashion designer. <laughs> I, just, I wish that was true. Um, now, that was unfortunately just an April Fool, so not even fake news. But we might as well start spreading that rumor. If we all share that link on Facebook, it will go viral among the 200 people that we know. Um, or th- this, this video clip, we're going to just play a 40-second advert because I couldn't resist this. I wish this piece of fake news was true. Let's see if this works. According to Fitbit, you've taken about 8,200 steps. About 8,300 steps. About 8,400 steps. Okay, ordering jumbo sushi platter from Amazon restaurants. There we go, it seemed to die, but that's fun, isn't it? I would love it if that were true. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, some of you pet lovers, I'm sure, would love that. The rest of us would just go along with it. Um, but is Christianity just like that? A piece of fake news like the rest of it? Well, here's something that I've, I came across recently that is really interesting about the Christian message and the Christian news. Uh, in AD 50, an inscription was found, or there's an inscription that's been found that dates back to AD 50. So Jesus died AD 30, 20 years after Jesus. This inscription was found around a, a graveyard in Nazareth. It's called the Nazareth Inscription. And if we put this up, um, church for everyone, (laughs) this is um, an inscription. And the translation of it is particularly interesting because it reveals how the Christian story had gone out there. John, any joy? There we go. And next one. This is a part of the translation of that. The Emperor Claudius issues an edict warning of penalties for breaking open or violating tombs. Turns out they had a problem, not with grave robbers, but with people popping the lids off the tombs to see if the people inside them had come back to life. Why would they have done that? I mean, these people in 50 AD, they knew that dead people stayed dead. They're not stupid, despite what modern people might like to say about ancient people. They knew that dead people stayed dead. But here's the thing. Jesus was a Jew. Nazareth is in the land of the Jewish people, Israel. And around their time, they had a hope. Their story, if you like, was that at the end of time, God was going to raise the righteous from the dead, bring them back to life, and he would recreate a world for the righteous to live in. That was what they believed. Jesus' friends and followers believed that. That's part of why Thomas struggled to believe. He wasn't just being skeptical. He was thinking, but this isn't the end of the world. No one else has come back to life, just Jesus. They were believing and hoping that at the end of history, all the righteous would rise from the dead. As part of the reason why Jewish people buried their dead. The pagans may have burned them on pyres, but not the Jews. They buried them because they were expecting a resurrection. They weren't expecting a resurrection of one man at the middle of human history. They were waiting at the end. So when Christians started saying that Jesus is alive, people around the region thought, if Jesus is alive, maybe the resurrection has happened. Maybe the thing that we've been looking forward to has happened. And so it would seem that people were popping the lids off tombs, thinking, is this the end of the world? Are the dead back from the dead? And are they hungry? Are they need to come out of the tomb? Are they struggling for air? Which is fascinating. If Christianity was a piece of fake news, it had gone global. But the question that we really need to ask is, did Jesus rise from the dead? I mean, people heard the story. People who weren't Christians, apparently, 
were popping the lids off the tombs to see if other people had raised from the dead because they'd heard this one story. And the Christians were going around saying, have you heard that God has come and God is king and now Jesus is alive? Have you heard that he's come to rescue us and to save us? Have you heard? Well, let's read the story to find out exactly how Jesus died. Let's turn to the next um, slide. Oh, there we go. This is the story here. Um, in Matthew 27, verse 27 to 56, I'll read it from here and you can follow along on the screen. When it was evening, or is it, I'll read it from there. As evening approached, there came a man, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, one, of the, one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question that we're going to put to ourselves this morning. To answer our question, is there any hope for the world? We're going to first ask the question, is Jesus alive then? It's a historical fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty a few days later. That there was no body in the tomb that Jesus was laid in. And so that leaves us with some options if we put them up. Next screen. These are the five options. The tomb was empty. And as far as I'm aware, these are the five credible or only options that people have ever suggested as to how the tomb became empty in the first place. You may have your own one, and in which case I'd love to hear it. Maybe aliens abducted him, I don't know. But those are the five credible ones that people have talked about. It's a historical fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty on Easter Sunday. The question is, how did it become empty? Since, of course, we know, and they knew, that dead people don't come back from the dead. Or do they? So the first option, of course, is that Jesus didn't really die. He was just pretending. Um, although, that's a nice story, but let's just read what the Bible says about how Jesus died. In John 18, it says, When they came to Jesus, that's the Roman centurions, the guards at the cross. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. So, according to the Bible, Jesus didn't just die on the, cro on the cross. He also had some Romans shove a spear into his side, which let out a release of blood and water, which doctors tell us is something that happens at death. The blood and the water in our system separates and it's a sign that we're dead, is that the blood and the water have separated. Did Jesus really die though? I mean, Christians may have made that up, I grant it. Well, the Romans were experts at killing people. They were well-versed in how to crucify someone. Uh, you may be aware of the film Spartacus, um, but Spartacus is based on a his historical event where a slave led a rebellion against the Romans, and when they captured him, they then punished 3,000 of them by crucifying them, one after the other along the Appian Way uh, across the bottom of Italy. as a sign to everyone. 
This is what happens to traitors. We crucify them. The Romans knew how to crucify people, knew how to kill people. They were trained in death. If you've ever contemplated or thought about Jesus' crucifixion accounts, you realize people don't recover from that. They don't get up. But the first option for how the tomb became empty is that Jesus didn't really die. And on, good, on Easter Sunday, he got up, rolled the stone back, overpowered the Roman guards, headed for the hills, and came back a short time later and told his followers, I'm alive. And he was in such good physical condition that they believed not only was he alive, but that he was God. That's option one. Option two is that the disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body. And I suppose this could have happened. The disciples could have overpowered the Roman guards. They could have rolled the stone back. They could have stolen Jesus' body. And then they could have made up the story that Jesus was alive. Except for the fact that, as we've mentioned, Jesus' followers were Jewish. And the Jewish people were looking for uh, a Messiah to come and rescue them from the Romans. A Messiah was like a, a general of an army. They were expecting a, a general of an army to lead them into battle to destroy the Romans and to liberate their people. Much like many uh, Jews and Arabs are looking for in the Middle East still to this day. Looking for conquerors to come and vindicate them and rescue them, liberate them. They were looking for a Messiah and that's what Messiahs did. So when Jesus died on the cross... Their first thought wasn't, he must be the Messiah. He must be the conquering hero we've been waiting for. Their first thought was, oh, he's not. <laughs> and they basically went back to their old jobs. We read about them fishing a few days later. They're like, well, he wasn't the Messiah. He's dead. Add to the fact that if the Bible's right in describing the nature of Jesus' disciples, these were not men who would have, A, gone and got the body in the first place, and B, been able to overpower a Roman guard. They were cowardly. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied that he knew him to a little girl. So it's unlikely, very unlikely, that the disciples would have stolen the body in the first place. And what's fascinating to me is that the Bible even puts that forth as a, as a statement of what could have happened. In the bit that we read um, from Matthew's Gospel, the authorities say, you know, let's go and put this guard, lest his disciples steal the body and go around telling everyone he's alive and the later, latter de deception will be worse than the first. You remember that bit that we read? The, the Bible records that someone said that. So it's almost putting it out there as an option saying, yeah, people were saying this, that we stole it. But if you know your history, if you know the Jews, if you know the disciples, you'd know very unlikely. The third option is that the authorities stole the body. It's just that when the disciples started saying, he's alive! They forgot where they'd put it, and they didn't go and get it. I mean, this relies on um, the authorities miss, messing up big time. Particularly when you read in the Bible later that the leaders wanted to crush and stamp out this Christian movement because it was, it was a nuisance, and it was creating trouble. And if they wanted to crush it and stamp it out, and they had the body locked away in a locker somewhere, you'd think they'd have gone and got it and gone, he's not alive, he's here. But they didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Because they didn't have the body. They didn't steal the body. The fourth option is that Jesus' followers went to the wrong tomb. This is the sexist option because the Bible records for us that it was women who first found the empty tomb. And this basically relies on women getting lost. They didn't have the first century equivalent of a satnav. And they went to the wrong tomb and thought, he's alive. And then they went and got everyone else and said, he's alive. Look, it's an empty tomb. Except for the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, who we read about, had recently bought the tomb. And at some point he would have said, that's the one I paid for. I don't know what that one is. But they didn't do that. This theory that Jesus' followers went to the wrong tomb relies on everybody getting lost all of the time. And not even the authorities knowing where it was to go and get the body back. 
What's fascinating is just an aside in history. Within a hundred years or two, Christians had, we didn't, had forgotten which tomb Jesus had been buried in. So if you go as a tourist to Jerusalem today and go for a tour around the sites and the scenes, and they'll, they'll show you where Jesus died, and they'll show you where they might have buried him. They, I say might because they don't actually know which tomb Jesus was put in because no one was visiting there, and they quickly just forgot. It didn't become a shrine. No one commemorated it. Um, why? Why do people lose their holy place? You know, you think other religions have got their holy places that they go to. You'd think that the tomb of Jesus would be a holy site for pilgrimage. But no one goes there. In fact, we don't even know which tomb it is that he was buried in. Why? Because they didn't go there. They didn't need to because he was alive. So they didn't lose the body. They didn't lose the tomb. Jesus' followers didn't go to the wrong tomb. The other option, the fifth option, is the most subversive and dangerous option of them all. Because if this option, that Jesus is alive, is true, then it calls into question everything about reality and life as we know it. And it requires us to think through carefully. Because the disciples started saying shortly after Jesus, after Easter Sunday, he's alive and I've seen him. Thomas put his hands in his nail prints, cried out, my Lord and my God. Someone else records that at one time Jesus appeared to a group of hundreds at one time. Mass hallucinations on that scale are not heard of. It's not possible. And before long, the Christian movement had taken over the known world. And we're still talking about it and singing about it now. Because the Christians were going around saying, have you heard? The man that they killed is alive. And by being alive, as God has shown evidence to the world, he's my son. He's the leader. He's in charge. Have you heard about this God of love who came down to save us, they said. Have you heard about this God who died on a cross and three days later arose to new life? So let's go back to the, right at the beginning. We asked the question, what hope do we have? Is there any hope in the world? The answer to the question, what hope do we have, is one word, Easter. Easter is our hope. But what does that mean? If I say Easter is our hope, what's the real meaning and message of Easter? Well, it's two things. Firstly, it's that life change is possible. Real, genuine life change is possible. The human race's two big problems is, firstly, that we are prisoners. We're victims. We're victims of other people's injustice. We're victims of our own desires at times. We can't change if we want to. There are powers that keep us captive. If you've ever struggled with addiction, you'll know that you're a victim. And at times you'll feel like, I can't help but do the things I don't want to do. Help me. The human race's first problem is that we're victims. Our second problem is that we're guilty. We need forgiveness. There is a God. We have broken God's commands. We do have real guilt. I remember sitting down with someone a couple of years ago, a young man who was addicted to pornography. He was a Christian. And he said to me, I can't be free. I've tried everything. I don't know what to do. I'm a victim. I'm a slave. But I said, no, you're not a victim. You're not a slave and you can be free. How do I know? Because Jesus is alive. Life change is possible. A few years on, he is free. I was talking to another young man a couple of months ago. And he said to me, can I ever be forgiven for what I've done? Will God ever forgive me for this? He wasn't a Christian. And I said, Easter means that God will forgive you, has forgiven you. That's what the message is. Life change is possible. And so he asked Jesus to forgive him. Now he calls himself a Christian. 
Easter's first message is that life change is possible. Easter's second message is that Jesus is in charge. In 2014, ISIS took the city of Mosul. They defeated uh, the occupying forces there. And as a result of that victory, ISIS were in charge of Mosul. Because when you win a victory, you become victorious by nature. And you're now in charge. Well, what's our real power that's oppressing us? A few of us will meet genuine members of ISIS who will oppress us. Who's really in charge of this world? Are the politicians in charge who make the decisions for us? Well, they might be in charge of deciding the events that we navigate through in life. It might be as a result of some poor decisions of our leaders that we, we meet Jesus quicker than we thought we were going to. But they're not really in charge. And they're not our real enemy. ISIS isn't our real enemy. Death is. Death is the one that's been reigning, if you like, ever since the creation of the world and ever since the human beings, the first human beings, decided to trust themselves instead of God, instead to worship the world, instead of worshiping God. Death has been ruling and reigning. And last I checked, death is still in charge. ISIS will come and go. A few years ago, it was someone else. A few years' time, it'll be another baddie that we have on our news screens. The real baddie is death. And the message of Easter is that Jesus has defeated death, disarmed it. Now, death isn't an enemy for Christians. Death is a servant to bring us into the presence of Jesus. As one writer puts it, we have a saviour who knows his way out of the grave. No other faith, no other philosophy can say that. All faiths and religions offer solutions to their perceived problem. Do this, believe that. Go visit there, pray this, buy that, shop here, solve your problems. But none of them can deal with the real problem, the real problem of death, except for Jesus, because Jesus defeated death. So Easter's message is that life change is possible and that Jesus is in charge. So look at the news, you'd think that the world is off the rails. Is anyone in charge? To look at history, you'd think history's just brutal and chaotic and messy. But Easter tells us Jesus is in charge. So what hope do we have? We have the hope of Jesus. We have a saviour who knows his way out of the grave. What hope do you have? What are you backing in life to help you navigate through the storms and trials and difficulties of life? Who are you trusting? Trust my desires. They'll tell me how to live. They'll tell me where to go, what to do, what to believe. Whatever I feel to be right, I'll trust that feeling. Maybe you're putting your hope in your habits, in what you think makes you happy. Oh, my real hope is in my politicians, actually. My real hope is that I live in Britain, which is a peaceful civilization. We haven't known war for a few years now. It was the Iraq war. Well, we haven't been invaded since 1066. My hope is in Britain, in the politicians to make wise decisions. Our hope is in Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the one whose death and resurrection means that we can be forgiven and we can be free to worship God, to live for God, to know God. But it's a difficult question. It's a difficult thing to think through, particularly if you're a skeptic, particularly if you don't know Jesus and you're asking these questions for yourself. I get that. 
It's not easy being a Christian. I'm not saying come to Christ and your life will be easy. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite. Come follow me and life will get harder than it was before. That's what Jesus promises. So it's not like a get rich quick scheme. In fact, there are two questions, two types of questions in life. Type A and type B. Type A, type A questions are questions that we can have certain answers for. Those are questions of mathematics a lot of the time. Two plus two equals four. So if my son comes and asks me that question, Daddy, what's two plus two? I can say with certainty, it's four, son. And he'll say, wow, you're so clever, Dad. You know everything. I'm like, I know that certainly. Two plus two is four. But when you get to year six at school, I won't be able to help, just so you know, because <laughs> that's difficult. That's type A question. Type B questions are questions that we cannot have certain answers to. The trouble is that type B questions are the ones that really matter to us in life. So my son will come to me in a few years' time, and he'll ask me, Daddy, we won't say Daddy by this time, Dad, Father, Papa, Lord and Master. <laughs> he'll say, what is the meaning of life, Dad? And I'll give him my opinion. And he'll say, Dad, who should I vote for at the next election? I'll give him my opinion. And he'll say, Dad, will I ever find happiness? Will I ever find love? Will I find a woman who will accept me, marry me? I'll say, miracles happen, son, your dad did. <laughs> he'll ask me these questions, and I'll give him my best guess. But I can't tell him with certainty. This is, the, this is the absolute certain answer. Because type B questions are different from type A questions. But type B questions really matter. Easter falls into that category. I think Jesus is alive. I think the Christian message is true. I'm not saying it's without difficulty in thinking through. I'm not saying life's without heartache and hardship. But I think it's true. And I think following Jesus out of the grave is my best bet. But that's a type B type question. And it's for us, for you to think through. We saw a video of 27 people who shared stories of how Jesus impacted their lives. We've heard from people in the Bible who've had Jesus impact their lives. We've shown some evidence, if you like, to appeal to your thinker, to make you consider, I think Jesus is alive, but you need to think about it for yourself. You need to engage with it. One of my favorite quotes on this subject we're going to read as we finish. This is a statement that a man named Sheldon Van Uken made. It's a great name. He was a writer living in America in the 1950s. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis who wrote the Narnia Chronicles. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian and that was annoying to him. And so it led him to investigate Christianity. And after thinking about it and hearing the Christian message, he said this. He said, as I thought about it, there is a gap between the probable, what I think is likely, and the proved, type B, type A. There's a gap between those type of questions. How was I to cross it, he said. If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of flesh. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject. My God, he said. There was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap of acceptance was a horrifying gamble. But what of the leap of rejection? What this man is saying is that when I heard the claims of Christianity and the claims of preachers like me, I realized upon hearing those claims that there was now a gap behind me, a gap of certainty between the probable and the proved. You realize that over here was the land where I'd never heard about Jesus and I was convinced that Christians were all lunatics and it was all a made-up fable. Now that I've thought about it, I realize it's not a fable, it's not made-up lunacy. But it's not certain like it was over here and now he realizes there's a gap. There's a gap between him and Christ. As he realizes to embrace him is to let go of that. And he stands in this island in between decisions to reject or to accept. 
to believe or disbelieve. But he realizes he can't stay here anymore. He can't plead ignorance anymore. There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. Once I'd seen the gap behind me, I turned away from it and I flung. That wasn't a very good fling, was it? Sorry, that was more of a, I skipped and I flung myself. Was that a better jump? I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. For him, it was just a very rational decision. Jumped, leapt to Jesus. What's clear is that we each have to decide for ourselves. Now, for some people, they have lights across the sky and Jesus knocks them off their horse and they go blind and they say, wow, who is this Jesus? And there are names written in the sky. But for everyone else, it's a question of deciding for yourself and learning to trust Jesus day by day, learning to put your hope in him. But what Easter is really all about is that hope is here. Not because of the politicians, but because of the empty tomb. You can find lasting change. You can be forgiven, you can be free, and Jesus is in charge. Have you heard about a God of love came down to save you, died on a cross for you, rose to new life for you? We're going to respond this morning by listening to the band sing a song. Uh, has that question put in it? Have you heard? So perhaps the band can come and join us. Have you heard? After that, we'll stand together and we'll sing, we'll celebrate a couple of other songs before we finish for the morning. But let me just pray as the band get their stuff together. So Father, thank you for this Easter message. For we can have hope. We needn't despair of life. And Father, if there are people here today who are literally despairing of life, I pray that you would speak words of hope and affirmation to them. That God says to you, you are loved. I came for people just like you. You're not unusual in a room full of normal people. We're all broken, we're all needy, we're all hopeless without Jesus, and he's come to set us free. Thank you, Father. Amen.